We've had another beautiful day this week, and uh, we are blessed with a lot of different visitors from the community and also from other places. And we want to begin by expressing our appreciation. Uh, you've been an encouragement to us tonight. We're very glad you've decided to be here with us, and we hope that the study of the evening will be a blessing to you, uh, that you feel welcome by being here, and we want you to know you are our honored guest. Throughout the last week, we have been conducting a special event that we have been calling a gospel meeting. And uh, to some people that we've talked to in the community, we've said it's like a revival. And I'll be honest, I think we've had a little bit of both. Um, we've had some, definitely some subjects that pertain to the gospel, uh, but having these gatherings and being together, they revive us. And I think it recenters our minds and our hearts toward our God. And because of that, I love these events. Every night we've offered an invitation. You know, uh, throughout the years, we get all kinds of different invitations. Um, I was contacted a few months ago and was given an invitation to come and be here and and I was very excited about that invitation. Uh, I obliged. Kane invited me over to the house last night, and I really wanted to go, but I didn't have any gas left. So I told him, I said, man, I'm, I'm just wore out. I'm going to go back to the house and rest. And I hated that because I think I would have really enjoyed spending time with them. Um, but, you know, there's also been invitations that I've got in life that somebody has invited me to something, and I thought, mm, I'll pass. <laughs> Not every invitation is a good invitation. You might remember the, the boys in the schoolyard that draw the line in the sand and back up. Whether you know it or not, that was an invitation. We have all kinds of invitations. Birthday parties, anniversaries, baby showers, always invitations. And I'm going to tell you, friends, that of all the invitations that we get that bring us joy and excitement, there's never been a greater invitation than the invitation that Jesus Christ gave in Matthew chapter 11. Where he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, or heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think if you look at what Jesus says here, you'll understand that when Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, that he is talking to each and every one of us. Because that's life. Life is full of ups and downs. Life is full of burdens. Life is full of hardship. Sometimes we live life in great joy. Other times, not so much. Sometimes we're in depression, sometimes in sorrow, sometimes we are burdened with guilt. But friends, Jesus offers us rest if we will come to him. And you know, there's been a lot of people who have rejected the invitation of Jesus Christ. In fact, when Jesus was on the earth, he said in John 5 and 39, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Now listen, and ye will not come to me that you might have life. Isn't that ironic? That these men who supposedly were religious leaders, who were Bible scholars, searched those scriptures, and yet somehow they missed Jesus Christ. And he said, you think you have eternal life, and here I am standing here before you, and you could come to me, and you could have the eternal life that you really desire, but you won't. They rejected his invitation. And I want you to know this made Jesus very sorrowful. 
And he lamented about that in Matthew chapter 23 where he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He looked out at these people that he had come to save and he said, you know, what I really would like to do is to take you to myself and hold you and secure you and protect you just like a mother hen would her chickens. But he said, you know what? You wouldn't have it. You would not allow me to do that. And I want you to know something about an invitation. An invitation is only as good as the response that's given. We have to respond to the invitation if we really want to receive the benefit. Friends, if we don't respond, don't expect to have the blessings. Don't expect to find rest unto your soul. Don't expect to find joy and peace in life if you will not respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ. And I know that every night when we have this invitation, that that might be a little bit something different from what people are accustomed to. And people are confused about that invitation. And because of that, I want to make sure nobody is confused about what we're trying to do here. And I want you to understand that, first of all, uh, this invitation that we give at the each, each one of these lessons uh, is just something we've arranged. Uh, you're not going to look in the Bible and find a section where it talks about an invitation in an assembly, but we believe that it's important because it provides an opportunity. It provides an opportunity for people who are struggling to be strengthened. It provides an opportunity for those who might be in sin to ask for prayer or confess faults. James chapter 5 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Friends, there are times in life when we need that. And I will tell you, that of a lot of the commands that we see in the New Testament, I believe that we neglect this one quite a bit. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you don't want other people knowing your faults. And so we're reluctant to go to someone and tell them about a weakness that we have or a fault that we might have. But I'm going to tell you, there is healing in confession. There's a healing in that. There's a peace of mind that can be had. And sometimes that peace of mind is greater when we get other people involved or when someone prays for us, just as he says here, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We see this very situation in Acts chapter 8 where a man named Simon, who had been converted to Christ, started to revert back to his old ways. He had saw that uh, John and Peter were able to give gifts of the Holy Ghost, and that infatuated him, and he thought... You know, if I had that power, in fact, guys, give me this gift. He offered them money trying to buy this gift. And, and Peter told him, he says, look, your heart is not right. Your heart's not right in this. And he said, you need to pray to God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He said, Simon... You are in sin, and what you need to do is turn from that sin and pray to God. And Simon answered and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me. Friends, there's healing in confession, and there is healing 
when we pray for one another. And so we have reserved an opportunity that if you need healing tonight, we will pray with you and for you. It's not only an opportunity for those who might need to confess sin, it's also an opportunity for those who might need to obey the gospel. The Bible says in Romans 6 and 17, But God be thanked that though you, you were the slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and being set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Some today here in this audience might just be the description that he gives here of being a slave to sin. And maybe you felt the guilt of sin for a long, long time and known that you've needed to obey your God in baptism and obeying the gospel of Christ. But you haven't done that. And friends, I want to tell you, we're not here to judge you. We're here to help you with that. And some people, they don't respond because they're a little bit uncertain of what's going to happen if they do. And, and I'll tell you, I sympathize with you. I don't like uncertainty. I don't like going into situations that I don't really know what the outcome is going to be. So uh, just for a moment, I want to visit with you about that. If you came up here tonight confessing sin, nothing embarrassing is going to happen to you and nothing unkind is going to be said. The Bible says, likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, you may minimize the importance of someone coming forward and repenting sin, but God doesn't. Jesus said that there was joy in heaven. Angels rejoicing when one sinner repents. We will rejoice with you. We will not be unkind to you. We won't embarrass you. But we will rejoice with you. If you came forward tonight and asked for prayer... One of the elders or I will visit with you in a private, a quiet manner. And uh, we will not disclose private details about whatever you confess. We're not going to stand up and, and, and tell the audience everything you've told us. That's not what it's about. Uh, it's not to put you on display. But friends, what we will do is we'll go to God in prayer on your behalf. And he will forgive you of your sins. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgives sin when we confess it. If you came up to obey the gospel tonight, friends, one of the elders or I will visit with you in a private manner in the same way. And we will ask you to confess publicly that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You'll then go to a private room. There's a change of clothes in the back. You don't have to get your clothes wet. There's a change of clothes back there. And then we'll go down into the baptistry with you. One of us will. And we'll baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost for the forgiveness of your sins. Your sins will be washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's all this is. But you know, even knowing that, some people, they make excuses. And I'm going to tell you, I know they make excuses because I've been one of those people. And some people will say, well, you know what, I, I really know that I need to do that. I need to obey the gospel, but, but I need to learn a lot more before I do that. And I certainly think that knowledge is an important thing. We need to understand what we're doing. But I want to turn over with you to Acts chapter 16. And uh, I've spoiled you with the scriptures on the screen. We're not going to have all of them up here tonight. So if you'll grab a Bible, we're going to turn over to Matthew 16. There's quite a bit of text that we'd have to put up here. And, uh, I'd rather just read it, so let's turn those pages. Acts 16, 
We're going to start in verse 25. Paul and Silas have been working in Philippi for a while, and uh, there was a certain woman there that the Bible says had a spirit of divination. Um, She was actually a slave girl to a couple of magistrates, and and they were using her sort of like a soothsayer. And uh, people would come, and she'd tell them things, and they'd make money off of it. And Paul finally got annoyed at this, and and one day he come by, and he said, come out of her. And so the spirit left her, and that made them angry. And so they took Paul and Silas, and uh, they punished them. And we're going to pick up our reading in verse 25. It says, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. I want you to put yourself in their position for a minute. They were beaten with many stripes, and now they've been cast into prison. And rather than complain and moan and whine about it, they praised God and they sang praises. And you know what? That had an impact on the audience that was around them, the other prisoners. They heard them. In verse 26, it says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. You know, as a keeper of this prison, this man was given a charge that if he didn't keep, he would be punished accordingly. Perhaps crucified or some other type of terrible death that he would have suffered because he failed to do his duty. And so this man, being in a hopeless situation, thinks his best choice at this point is to pull out his sword and fall on his sword and kill himself. And Paul says, don't hurt yourself. We're still here. Nobody's left. That must have been a great relief. This man was relieved and he says to Paul in verse 29, then called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's asked the most important question that a person could ever ask. And I want to read the answer they gave him. Verse 31. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And it says, They spake unto him the word of the Lord. They taught him the gospel of Christ. And all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. This man, who was a pagan, learned enough in an hour's time to come to Christ and be saved. How much do you suppose that he really knew? You know, people will say, well, I I need to learn uh, everything I can know, and then I'll come to Jesus Christ. Well, this man, he didn't have the time to do that. And friends, you may not have the time to do that either, but this man had enough time to learn what he needed to know. See, Jesus would say in the Great Commission, 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now listen, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus said, look, first you go teach them the gospel. Then you baptize them. Then you teach them what I've taught you to observe. You teach them to observe what I've told you. We don't need to get that flipped around. We don't need to learn everything first. We need to know just enough to obey the gospel. And friends, maybe you don't even understand what the gospel is. So I don't want you leaving here tonight not understanding what that is. We've spoken from Acts chapter 2 a lot through this meeting. And there's a reason why we've done that. Because this is the first time that the gospel was ever preached. And it was a great message that Peter gave to a multitude of people that day. And when he stood up, he said, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. As Peter stood up before these people, he said, there's a man that walked among you, a man that performed miracles, a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, you saw his miracles. You know he did these miracles. And he said, guess what? That man had God's approval. Not only did he have God's approval, in a moment he told them from the prophets, this was actually the divine son of God the Messiah who you've been looking for, and he said, you took him, and by wicked hands, you killed him. But he said, God raised him up from the dead. He gave him victory over death, and God did not allow his flesh to see corruption. He didn't allow his body to stay in the grave and decay. And he said, he's now sitting at the right hand of God, exalted. Sitting on the throne of David, just as David spoke concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They asked the same question that the jailer asks. And Peter didn't say nothing. <laughs> he answered their question by saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Friends, this is the message of salvation. That because Jesus Christ paid the price for sins, because he is God's Son and was perfect, because he has shed his blood to remit those sins, we can have forgiveness if we will turn from our sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. God will give us forgiveness and cleansing. And not only that, he will sanctify us through the power of the Spirit. He will give us hope. He will give us purpose. So tonight, what do you need to know to be saved? Well, first off, you need to understand what sin is. And you understand that. Do you know what sin is? Have, have you ever committed any sin? I remember asking my son that question one time. Do you know what sin is, son? And he said, is that like when mom keeps telling me to quit picking my nose? <laughs> I said, well, no, you ought to obey your mom and not do that. But that's not exactly what I mean. 
thought, well, he's not ready. <laughs> not ready for that talk. <laughs> but I think he understood that obviously sin was doing something wrong. Sin is breaking God's law. That's what sin is. It's a transgression of the law. Do you understand that? You know, sometimes very small children come up, and I've, I've talked to them, and they've come up and requested to be baptized. And I've said, well, have you committed any sins? And they go, I don't know. I don't know. Friends, we need to understand what sin is. Do you believe that God will punish you for the sins you've committed? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And do you know why he died on the cross? Do you believe he was buried? And do you believe that he is arisen from the dead, that he lives forevermore? Do you know what repentance means? Do you know the reason for being baptized? Friends, if you know the answers to these questions, you know enough. You know enough. You know, another reason why people often reject Christ's invitation is because of fear. Some people are just afraid of crowds, and, and you may not know this or even believe it, but I can sympathize with you. When I was growing up, I couldn't dare stand before a crowd. It scared me to death, and sometimes David Zebach would talk me into getting up and reading the chapter at church, and I'd just sit up there and shake. Voice would quiver. I'd lose my place about 30 times. It scared me to death. You know, they did a poll one time, and they, they were asking people what they're afraid of, and in their investigation, they found that the most fearful thing in life was actually not death. Death was number two. Number one was public speaking. Scarier than death. <laughs> Crowds can be frightening, can't they? You don't have to come up at the invitation. You don't have to do that. But if you need to get right, don't let this crowd deter you from doing that. Come and find somebody after the services or just talk to us and we'll wait around with you until everybody's gone and we'll take care of that. We can do that in a private manner. But don't let that be a, an excuse that deters you from doing what you need to do. Sometimes people are afraid of criticism. They think, well, if I become a Christian, I'm going to be criticized. And let me just assure you, you will. In fact, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3 says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of right. Listen, speaking evil of you. Peter said, guess what? If you become a Christian and you live in the right way, people are going to speak evil of you because they're going to think you're strange. Because you won't partake with them in the things that they do. Friends, you're probably already being criticized whether you're a Christian or not. That's just a part of life. That's just human nature. People criticize one another. But I want to notice some other people that were criticized in the Scripture. And we're fearful of that criticism in John chapter 12 and verse 42, where the Bible says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogues, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. These people heard the teachings of Jesus. 
Not only that, they believed the teachings of Jesus. They believed he was the Son of God, but they took no action. Why? They were afraid of losing their social status. People will criticize you if you do what's right. Family, friends, maybe even your spouse. But there's going to come a day when we're all going to stand before the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. And that day, you won't care what any person thinks of you. You won't care what they've said about you, but you will care what Jesus thinks of you. And friends, what a terrible decision it would be if we allowed what men might think of us to be the very thing that we trade our eternal soul for. That'd be a very bad trade. Don't worry about what people say because God will be pleased. God will be pleased with your decision in spite of what man thinks. Some people say, well, I, I would like to become a Christian, but I'm afraid I'm going to be tempted as if we're not already tempted. But there's a difference in someone that's outside of Christ being tempted and someone that's inside of Christ being tempted. I want to read 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 with you. Paul writing here says, There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. I want to repeat that. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Every single person is already being tempted, but friends, for the children of God, God gives them safeguards. He is not going to allow us to be tempted above what we are able, and he makes a way of escape so that we may be able to bear it. And I'm not certain that that's a promise to the world. You know, people are really afraid that I just cannot be a Christian. I can't live that life. I'm not capable. You know, there are certain pivotal moments, moments in life that you can look back on and you can say, you know what, that particular memory, that event in my life, that was a defining moment. And I guess I've had several of those. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is uh, when my dad and mother decided to get divorced. That was a pivotal moment in our life. It changed the way we thought about things. It changed the way we looked at ourselves even. And you ask yourself a lot of questions through that. It, it starts to make a person start to define themselves in different ways. I guess the second thing that comes to mind is when my dad remarried and I moved into a different home and all of a sudden the attention that we were being given was directed towards someone else. And so guess what I did? I went to war. It was a defining moment in my life. And I'll tell you, through all of that, there were several things I started to feel about myself. And one of those was I felt like I was really an outsider and nobody cared. Now, that wasn't true, but that's the way I felt. I felt like I didn't have a place that I could call home. 
And I remember one day, probably one of the greatest defining moments in my life, where I looked at the decisions that I had made, at the place I was in, at the support system that I felt like I had, and I threw up my hands, and I found myself in hopelessness, and I just gave up. It was a defining moment. I just gave up. I thought, you know what? There's no way that I can be the man that God wants me to be. And I saw other people's lives who were godly and righteous, and I thought, though, I'd never live up to that. And so I moved away from home, moved in with a friend, and uh, it was a friend that I had met in high school at high school parties. And uh, he and I had a lot of things in common. We both came from dysfunctional families. Uh, we both had a lot of the same emotional problems. And because of that, he and I, we, we had a pretty good relationship as far as our closeness was concerned. And there was another thing we both enjoyed, and that was the escape that drugs provided from all those emotional problems. And I can remember sitting in this house day in and day out trying to make everything that I had defined myself as just stop. To try to redefine who I was. And I, it wasn't working. But I found myself in that place. And I tell you, the more I found myself in that place, the more that hopelessness existed. And I said to myself one day, this is just going to be life. It's not going to get any better. So we moved back to Pampa, Texas. That's where I called home. And, and after a while, I began to work for my dad, and I began to go to work with my uncle every day. We rode to work together every day, about 50 miles one way. And we talked about life, and we talked about different things. And, you know, he's not a very aggressive person. He's not even passive-aggressive. He's just very passive. And he would talk to me about God and about the Word. He was never pushy. And uh, at the time, I was in a band, and I was trying to be a rock star. And I could see a vast difference between the people that I was with, how their life was, how my life was, and how this man's life was. And it was a pivotal moment. So I went to church for the first time in years. And I'll tell you, it felt weird. It was a really strange feeling. People didn't really know what to say. They didn't really know how to talk to me. It was a strange feeling. But I went back. And after a while, it wasn't weird anymore. And after a while, I decided I was going to really commit myself for the first time in life to studying God's Word. So I got hungry. And on the way to work, when we'd ride to work, I'd sit there and I'd read the Bible. Lunch, I'd read the Bible. Then I went and bought an iPod, and there was a bunch of people who'd recorded sermons. So I put that iPod in my pocket and I put those headphones in my ears. I get to work, Dad would say, all right, go to work. This is what I want you to do. I put the earphones in. I listen to preaching eight hours a day. And you know what I found? I found it didn't just change the way that I thought. 
It was changing who I was. You know what our problem is? We say there's no way that I will ever be able to do that. And yes, guess what, friends? You're right. Because you're not going to find that within yourself. Because it's not there. But see, God has a greater plan than that. And I want you to notice that the people who obeyed the gospel in the first century, immediately, they continued steadfastly. That is, consistently, they began to study God's word. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. They continued together with other disciples. And they continued meeting and assembling. And they continued in prayer. And it changed them. It changed them. And I remember another defining moment. When I came up out of the waters of baptism and I felt free for the first time in my life. And all of that hopelessness just disappeared. And I thought, you know what? I can do this. I can live this life. No, I'm not going to be perfect, but I can live it. See, friends, God doesn't just want you to change what you do. He wants to change your very nature. James chapter 1 and verse 21 says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. This idea of engrafting the word is more than just a leisure reading of God's word. It's more than a memorization of God's word. It is making God's word Take root in your heart and applying that word in your life. You know, grafting is, is, is quite a marvelous thing. And I remember the first time I saw somebody had grafted a tree, and I'm, there's this guy out there that's really been studying this for a long time, and this man made this tree that produced multiple types of fruit. And I thought, that, that can't be right. That's against nature. <laughs> But you know what he'd done? He'd taken the limbs of this tree and he began to prune those limbs and made this V-cut in them and he had engrafted or grafted a different type of branch into these trees. And even though the tree by nature produced only one kind of fruit, because he'd engrafted these other branches that had a different nature into that tree, that tree began to change its nature. And that's exactly how God's Word works. Because man, by definition, develops a nature because of the things that happen in life. He develops a fleshly nature that gravitates away from God and towards sin. And a lot of that happens because of our associations. Because of the people and the companions that we keep. They corrupt that nature. They add to that nature, that carnal nature. But see, God's word being engrafted, friends, it can take that man who by nature is sinful and change his nature. To gravitate away from self and toward God. See, Paul, when he spoke to the church at Rome, said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Friends, you can be changed. You can be changed. God's Word can change the person that you are. You can do it. You can live the Christian life. God will not ask you to do something you can't do. 
I heard this story about a, a financial guru one time, and he was trying to convince the crowd that they could all be millionaires. There was one person sitting on the front row of this seminar. He was a young man, about 18 or 19 years old. And the entire time this guy stood up there and tried to run his sales pitch, this kid sat up there and just kept going like this and shaking his head. And he finally got annoyed and he stopped and he said, what is your problem? He said, excuse me? He said, you've done nothing but shake your head no the entire time I've talked. He said, I just think you're a liar. He said, well, why do you think I'm a liar? He said, I will never be a millionaire. And he said, would you come up here for a minute? I want to show you something. And this young man walked up on the stage and he pulls this bucket out, sets it on the table, and he says, would you look in that bucket for me? And this guy stood his head over the bucket and he shoved his bucket down in the bucket. It's full of water. Shoved his head under the water. This man began to flail around and fight and finally hits the guy and knocks him out of the way. Comes up huffing and puffing and he says, what's your problem? He says, when you want a million dollars as bad as you wanted your head out of that bucket, you'll find a way to get it. You know what the truth is? When it comes to life and death, we can do a lot of things that we may be afraid we couldn't do or we thought we couldn't. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. Living as a disciple of Christ is life and death. It's life and death. It's not just a good suggestion. It's not just maybe something you should do. It's something that you need to do because it's life and death. Another reason why people reject the invitation of Christ is because they simply don't want to change. The Bible in Hebrews 11 and 24 talks about Moses. And it says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What it's saying is when Moses became a man and he was allowed to leave the house, he chose to be something different than he had to be for all of his young life. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That'd be a pretty prestigious title. Be a lot of honor in that title if you were a secular person. But Moses refused that and he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Friends, the reason why we fail so many times and we give in a temptation is because there is pleasure in committing sin. That's why Eve ate the fruit. She saw it was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. It was a tree desired to make one wise. There's pleasure in sin. And we can ignore that or we can deny it all we want, but it's true. And if there wasn't, we would never commit it. But there is pleasure in sin. But I'll tell you, there's another side of sin that we all need to be aware of. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard. And I'll tell you, when, when I had given up and when I was living in sin every day, I was having some pleasure. But I'm going to tell you, at night, it was hard. And it's hard to deal with the guilt that piles on top of all the other problems you've already got. Sin makes life hard. It doesn't just make life hard for me. It makes life hard for everybody inside of my circle of influence. 
It made life very hard for my father. Very hard. Those were the worst years of his life. It made life hard for my grandparents. I'll tell you, it made life hard for me because I had to spend years trying to repair a very damaged reputation that I had rightfully built. I deserved that reputation. And it took years before people began to trust me. I'm still wondering if there's going to be physical consequences. I don't know that yet. But I'll tell you this, life is harder when you're living in sin. My friend that I moved in with, he's not with us anymore. And when he died, he left behind a very young child and a wife. And he died from overdose. Still chasing pleasure. And I'll tell you, in the moment, in the moment of sin... There's that peak of pleasure. The problem is it lasts but for a moment. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is about the two twins, Jacob and Esau. And in this particular instance, uh, they did something that is, is somewhat common among siblings. You know how children are when they've got something that, some, that the other one wants, they sort of antagonize one another. And that's kind of how I see this as I read these words and look at this story. Esau had been out in the field and he came home one night and the Bible says Jacob sawed pottage. He was cooking a stew of lentils or as we would probably say a pot of beans. And Esau came from the field and he was faint. That is, he was tired. He was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You know what happened to Esau here really is familiar to what we often do when our flesh cries out for satisfaction. This man, because he was faint, he was tired and very hungry evidently, he had convinced himself that if he did not get these beans, he would die. I've been hungry before. I might have even thought that I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat. But friends, he was not going to die. But because he had convinced himself that he needed this and he needed it more than anything else in life, Jacob, as an antagonizing brother would be, says, Okay, you can have some of my stew, but it's going to cost you. <laughs> Sell me your birthright. And Esau says, All right. You can have it. I mean, it's not like it's going to do me any good if I die, so seems like a good trade. Here, take it. And Jacob's going, really? <laughs> you swear. <laughs> We're going to do this deal. We're going to put it in writing. You swear. I swear. So we sold him his birthright. Now, you don't have to be a genius to realize that this was an extremely terrible 
deal. One person got a great deal. The other one got a very, very, very bad deal. And you know, the Bible actually talks about this deal a little bit later in the book of Hebrews when it says this about Esau. It says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, now listen, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know that how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Sean Zebok and I were out in New Mexico several years ago, and we were studying with three men. Um, one was the uncle of the other two. Two of those guys were his nephews. And, and we'd been studying for a while, and we got right down to the end of this study. And I'm telling you, he could see it. He could see what he needed to do, and he looked straight at us, and he said, I, I think I need to be baptized. And we said, well, that's great. When do you want to do that? Because we can go right now. There's a pool outside. And he said, well, before we do, I've got a question. I said, okay, what's your question? He said, uh, and I'm going to be somewhat vague because of the audience tonight, but he said, does this mean that I can't commit fornication anymore? I said, that's exactly what it means. He goes, well, in that case, I'm out. I'm out. You know why we don't change sometimes? Because we look change straight in the face and we go, I'm not done doing what I want to do. And right now, you may have that choice. And when Esau and Jacob were in the midst of this deal, he had that choice. But the Bible says there came a time when he didn't have that choice and he wishes he could take it back. But he couldn't. He found no place of repentance. And you know what? In one moment, he was saying, if you don't give me that, I'm going to die. I need it. Please give it to me. I'll give you whatever I have. Just give it to me. The next minute, he is crying and weeping, going, I have made a terrible mistake. I have traded something that would have lasted for something that lasted but for a moment. I have traded an eternity of joy for a moment of sin's pleasure. And what a bad trade it was. How much time do you have to continue to make choices to reject Jesus' invitation? James says in James 4, Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will enter into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. You know, we make all kinds of plans and we make all kinds of statements about what we're going to do tomorrow and what we're going to do next week and what we're going to do next year. And friends, for some people, those days never come. And their life gets cut off and it gets cut off quickly. We can put it off and put it off and say, well, I'm going to change someday when I'm ready. Someday. I want you to grab your Bibles one more time, and I want to read one more set of scriptures with you before we close. Luke chapter 12 and verse 16.
Luke chapter 12, verse 16. The Bible says of Jesus, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? This man was like a lot of people. He was living in the here, living in the now, thinking he was in control of his life and nothing was going to stop him from living till tomorrow. You know what he planned to do? He planned to live this life enjoying the blessings that this world has to offer. And his time was cut off. You know, the truth is, none of us can go up to a calendar and mark the day that we're going to leave this world, but everybody's going to. You will either die or the Lord will return, and he'll return unexpectedly. Back in 1996, I had another time in my life that was somewhat pivotal. I was headed to a family reunion at Pampa, and uh, we got out of the car, pulled up to my grandparents' house, and I'm walking up to my dad's father, my papa, and I could tell something's not right. Something's not right. As I walked up, he just held his arms out. He put his arms around me and he said, Ian, I'm so sorry. He said, but your Uncle Sammy is dead. And I was crushed. And I miss him. But I'm going to tell you something. I thank God he was ready. He was ready. And that's not the worst thing that could have happened to him. But I'll tell you, there's been a lot of people in my life who I've lost that I have been a lot more sorrowful over than my uncle who I love dearly because they weren't ready. They weren't ready. What if the Lord came back tonight? Would you be ready? When will God require your soul? Will it be tonight? Will it be tomorrow? I tell you, you can't know that. But right now, right here, you have an opportunity to make a change in life. We offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you have sin in your life, come and have your sins forgiven. Get right with your God. Make it right now while you have the opportunity. Come and have a seat as we stand and we sing.